Hello, my name is Claire and you are listening to the Hypno Birthing Podcast. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I hope that everybody is doing well. Just before I introduce the episode, I just want to give you a quick reminder that I do offer courses. I do get quite a few people message me and ask me whether I do, so I just wanted to put it here. I do offer courses. I have live courses that I teach kind of over four weeks and I also have a digital pre-recorded course as well. All of the details are in the show notes but all suitable and available wherever you are in the world. I also offer doula services as well so if you're local to me in Essex in the UK then I'm available in person but I do also offer virtual support and again that can be accessed wherever you are in the world. Now today's episode is actually the last episode of this current season and wow what a great episode. I was so excited that I got to sit down and chat to Dr Stuart Fishbein. I've followed his work for many years since I kind of got interested with uh, you know in this area and he has a lot of wisdom and a lot of very important insightful things to say. So I was so pleased when he agreed to have a chat with me and we decided to talk about home birth uh, because it's one of those topics that I think is quite one-sided in our view of it we get a lot of kind of negativity towards home birth or a lot of people think that it's really dangerous so I wanted to talk to Dr Stu kind of about home birth and you know why being at home can be a real benefit a lot of you asked me some questions. I I asked whether you had any questions for him on home birth. So I have asked him the questions that you guys sent me. And it was just a real, real pleasure to speak to him. So I'll play the episode for you now. A big welcome to Dr. Stuart Fishbein. Thank you so much for joining me. If you'd like to introduce yourself to everyone. Claire, thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Stuart Fishbein. I'm an OB in the United States. I was traditionally trained uh, in the medical model of obstetrics and came out of residency in Southern California and practiced in the hospital model for almost 28 years, including my residency. And over that time, I began to realize that a lot of the medical stuff that I had learned didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me in medical school and residency either, but you don't really ask questions and you're sort of beaten down by a big stick. And so you just kind of follow along. But when I started to uh, take transports from midwives, it changed my whole life because as people who've heard me say, I didn't take transports because I thought midwifery or home birth was a good idea. I'm pretty sure that I probably thought it was foolish, uh, just like most doctors coming out of training because we're, we're, we're sort of based in fear. But, uh, I began to learn a different way of doing things by sitting and talking to the midwives, talking to the clients that they transferred in. And, and slowly but surely, I began to change. And I started a collaborative midwifery practice after about 10 years in private practice. And for 15 years, we had a really good thing going, but we were really never accepted in the community. We were always sort of gunny sacked and peer reviewed dif- uh, differently. You know, was it like, they always talk about two tiered systems of justice. Well, there, that goes on in medicine as well, if you're not part of the favored group. Um, and we had C-section rate of about 7% and we took on all comers and the midwives would take care of all the normal stuff. Um, like, you know, the annuals and the pap smears and the well women exams and the prenatal care and all that stuff. And I would do the colposcopies and the surgery and then the C-sections and the breaches and the twins and the, and the, and that sort of thing. And it was, it was great. It's how having good midwives and an honest OB makes probably a really good collaborative practice. 
And, uh, but after about 15 years, the, the hospital it tried to get rid of us many, many times, couldn't do it on ground. So they just essentially figured out that they just didn't have to renew my privileges. And that came after two years of one banning VBAC, banning the midwives, and then banning breach delivery. Um, not because of bad outcomes, simply because of bad doctors, I guess. So I had had a choice and I chose to, the smarter choice was to leave and go do home birthing. But I have to tell you, Claire, that after 25 years or 24 years of practicing in private practice and backing midwives for that whole period of time, I was still nervous about going to my first home birth. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, because all of of the doubt and the fear is still... Yeah, you it's know, still in there. Still and it's there, like, yeah. you know, I was that person who said, well, what happens if this happens? And what happens yeah. if that happens? And and then I realized that that those things generally don't happen when you're not meddling with mother nature. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. since that time, I've, you know, I did about 12 years of home birthing. So I've been practicing for about 40 years now. And mm-hmm. I took a, I took off last year, uh, like a sabbatical, and it's just probably going to be an ongoing sabbatical, uh, where I bought an RV and I traveled around the country and I taught breach and twin delivery and oh, wow. I've been doing that now. And so that's sort of my passion. So that's what I do. I published a few papers. I wrote a book years ago called Fearless Pregnancy. Um, we've got a paper. I, I work, I collaborate with Rick Zafries, who's from Breach Without Borders. And we did a breach paper and we've got a twin paper that we're trying to get through publication, but finding that the publishing process has gotten more rigid against things that don't go along with the mainstream. So we're working on getting that out there. And uh, so that's me. So now I'm, I'm I'm a talker and a lecturer and a teacher and a homesteader here in Southern Utah. Yeah. So, so you're based there now. Yeah. I left California last year and it was a great decision. Yeah. Amazing. And you also have your own podcast, which you didn't mention. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't mention that. I didn't mention my web. <laughs> to that but my podcast is with my co-host bliss and it's called birthing instincts podcast and every week we you know tackle a topic and then just talk about the things of the day and sometimes we have guests on just like you um and and that's that's pretty much it no it's great it's great it's a great podcast as well i often have it on in my ear while i'm you know pottering around the house cleaning because i was thinking oh it's a learning opportunity (laughs) while i'm cleaning think dog walking is the number one and dog walking yes I do (laughs) yes I often do while I'm dog walking as well Um, I noticed as well you were in the UK recently weren't you yeah I was just going to mention that yeah I got to spend uh I got to teach breach in uh breach and twins in Dublin and then in London um I got to stay with uh Shelly Poulter on on her narrow boat with her husband Simon treat and then I got to tour uh, I rented a car and drove on the wrong side of the road and uh, spent eight or nine days driving around Ireland. And oh, it, it was a great trip. So lovely. So nice. Yeah, I, well, I love you. I love England. I, I think I have an affinity for British history. Yeah. I always have. And when, I, when I'm there, sometimes I do feel like I've been there before. I'm not a sort of believer in past lives and reincarnation, but maybe there is something to it. Or maybe yeah. it's just a, my amygdala goes crazy. When, yeah. I'm in, when I'm in England, but I do love it there. Yeah, no, maybe it's in you somewhere. Maybe maybe at one point you'll spend spend more time here. My parents did name name me Stuart. Yeah, yeah, which is Scottish, isn't it? Very Scottish. Yeah. yeah name, so who knows? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And you've come on to talk specifically about home birth. Um, you know, whenever I have 
kind of guests like yourself who are just so knowledgeable about everything to do with birth I'm like what can I talk to them about you know there's so many different things to cover but I think home birth is a great one as you said you're um really experienced in it so I think that's a great topic to cover I am and I acknowledge that I walk in the footsteps of all the midwives that came before me and they're the ones that taught me what I know so you know a lot of people get like well what does he know about it he's a guy what does he know has he ever pushed a watermelon out you know that sort of thing and no, I, I haven't, just so people <laughs> people can be sure. But, um, but, I, but I'm in a unique position of having lived in the medicalized birth world for almost 28 years and then lived in the home birth world for at least 12 or 13. So there are very few people who can say that they looked at it critically from both sides. Yeah. So that gives me a sort of unique perspective, I think. Yeah, you've seen both. You've experienced both, which is yeah. You're coming from a good a good place, knowing. Yeah, I mean, most people who've done home birthing really have never done hospital birthing. Although that's changing, a lot of women are a lot of nurses and stuff are leaving and going to midwifery school and whatever. But but certainly most work, people that work in the hospital have never seen a natural birth or a no. birth or a birth where people are free to do whatever they want, uninhibited by hospital protocols and policies and things like yeah. that. Yeah, no. Yeah, that is true. And that is quite worrying as well. Um, okay, so I put out onto my socials that I was going to be talking to you. And did anybody have any kind of questions for, for you about home birth specifically? Obviously, there were lots. But um, so I've got them written down just as kind of talking points. But the first thing I want to ask you is because I mean, obviously, I'm with UK the listeners of this podcast are all over the world. So I'll have lots of UK listeners. But I think um, the US is the second most uh, listened to it's the second most listened to. Um, so why is the home birth rate so low? Because, I mean, I think for us in the UK, it's about 2%. I imagine it's even less than that for you in the US. Why well, I was is it shocked so to find that out because I always thought because you have the National Health Service and and they, there was a time not too long ago where they were encouraging multiparous women, yeah. women who've already had at least one baby, yeah. vag- to stay home. And when I found out when I was just there, um, that it was a it was two percent. I was shocked. I know it is quite shocking, actually. In my country, it's about one and a half percent, one point four percent. Some states, it may be three four percent, and other states, it's like far less than one percent. Um, so it varies. You know, we've got fifty different experiments going on in, in my country. Uh, why is it so low? Um, I think most people understand that that it, you know, a hundred years ago, ninety nine percent of women gave birth in home. And within 30 years, uh, it was 100% reversed. 99% gave birth in the hospital. Between the tw- 1920 and 1950, there was an incredibly strong push by the American Medical Association and, and affiliated organizations to vilify midwifery and to take it over. I mean, it's a $50 billion business in my country alone. And they, you know, so... Is it nefarious? Yeah, it is nefarious. I mean, people think, well, you know, they wanted to do good, and they—I don't actually think that that was the case ever. Yeah, I think individual doctors want to do good, and individual nurses want to do good, but they're just in a hamster wheel, and they and they they can't get off. So, you know, we control people by fear, and there's no more fearful topic than childbirth, pretty much in our country, in your country as well. Yeah. Um, when people are scared, they'll do whatever they're told. They're they're malleable, and so they'll want to do, you know, 
<laughs> Blitz and I talked about it recently. We did a podcast called To Air on the Side of Caution. I don't know if we named it that, but but when you think about what that really means, it means I'm going to make an error to be cautious. All right. Well, yeah. that's what people's decisions are. They're going to make an error. They think that by giving birth in the hospital because it has an operating room or a uh, uh, anesthesiologist available that that's safer. And in rare cases, it is. But in most cases, it's it's a detraction and it actually makes it less safe. And I speak again from experience. So getting people who are scared to change their mind and the, and the real fear is in the physicians and the nurses who are trained in that system. And then they come out and they project their fear onto the women that they're caring for. And then they're fearful. And then, of course, you have generations of that. You have your mother, your mother-in-law, your auntie, your grandma telling you sometimes great stories, but often it's a scary story about how the hospital saved their baby. And if they wouldn't have been at the hospital, then you would never have been born. And yeah. what do you do? With that story? I mean, mm-hmm. it's your grandma telling you the story. How do you, how do you tell your grandma she's wrong? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you any, hear that a lot. And in any given case, she might not have been wrong. Yeah. The problem is we're, we're gaslit so much by the medical profession that you never know what's true anymore. That's why I, I think it's fear. And uh, because it is a natural function of, of the body of a, of a mammal and a woman is still yeah. a mammal to, to yeah. conceive, grow and deliver a baby without any intervention. Yeah. Uh, I like to, I, you know, I've made up this number, but I think about 85% of women should be delivered or taking, you know, go into labor um, and don't need a whole lot of attention. And about 15% really do need the medical system because otherwise they or their baby could suffer greatly. So to err, to err on the side of caution for 100% of women, because 15% of women might need it, is a choice that, that people should be able to make if they're given honest information. And that's what the problem really is, is that it's skewed. We have skewed information uh, coming out. I mean, you watch any birth on some movie or television show and it's, you know, rarely they'll have a really nice one, but most of the time they don't. And then there's a lot of naysayers yeah. and, and that's our culture. Yeah. Social media, people go, people go nuts because they're either bullies or traumatized um, when they hear somebody say something different. There's a cognitive dissonance that runs deep in our profession. One of the things I say as an example, sometimes in my country, if the C-section rate is 30%, which we, it's a little higher. And in your country, I've heard it's 40 and higher. Mm, and yeah. so, but say it's 30% because it makes easy math. And the actual rate should be 10 or 15%, let's say 15%. Well, anybody with a brain can tell you that means that 50% of all C-sections being done are not necessary. Yeah. My country, that's over 650,000 unnecessary major surgeries every year. And no one says anything. Not even the insurance companies who are paying for it say anything. But the really scary part, Claire, is is the cognitive dissonance of of this. And it's who's actually doing the unnecessary cesarean sections? Because no doctor ever goes home at night and says to their spouse, hey, honey, guess what? I did two unnecessary C-sections today. Every C-section a doctor does is necessary, yet half are unnecessary. So how do you solve that? How do you fix that? It's really hard. Because because uh, they ultimately they are believing that those are necessary, aren't they? They are so worried and fearful well, that the to them that's necessary. The alternative is unthinkable. Yeah, that they know they're doing unnecessary major surgery. Yeah, that, yeah, of course. That yeah, me, that's me. I don't I don't want to put evil onto the yeah into the into the mix. 
But all the forces, medical legal forces, expediency forces, economic forces, are all favored of induction and C-section. Get it, get the baby out. You know, one of my favorite sayings that I use all the time is that all that matters to the medical model is a live baby in the bassinet. Wow. And that sounds cruel, but how that baby gets there really doesn't matter to them. It may matter to the individual doctor, but it doesn't matter to the system. And the doctor is a cog in the, in the system. So just because you love your physician doesn't mean your physician can always advocate for what's best for you. He or she may be stuck in a system that says no one goes past 41 weeks or we don't allow VBAC here, or you have to have a, a spinal or an epidural if you're having twins. I mean, they just have these protocols that are meant yeah. to be, but become benchmarks for quality. And there is so much fear to deviate from them and no, almost no benefit. I mean, so I asked people as well, like what if they had, if they weren't choosing a home birth specifically, what were the reasons just out of interest? And I think the main reason it was that uh, if something goes wrong, so so you touched on that already, um, but that was somebody's, you know, that was their, the main reason amongst people. And I think that would probably be fair to say that that probably is the number one reason why people don't choose it is what if something goes wrong? I would, you know, I feel much safer being, you know, in the hospital near to where, you know, where things happen. And, um, you know, I mean, I must, I had, I chose two home births myself, but I think definitely first time I probably had a little bit of fear around that. Um, you know, well, what, what if, what if we hear so many horrible stories, what if that happens to me? But I think it's, and it's so hard because yeah, like we, we're, we're brought up, aren't we, to trust our doctors, like that's just kind of how we're raised. And so if they, they're fearful and they're projecting, like you said, that fear onto us, the moment you mention in a home birth, if they put that tiny bit of doubt in your mind, well, it's so hard to go against it. You, you wouldn't be normal, Claire, if you didn't have some anxiety or fear. No yeah. birth worker, I mean, in the back of their mind probably can eliminate all their anxiety. I mean, nature is formidable and things can happen. It's not it's not evil. It doesn't intend it to happen. It's designed to work properly. As I you know, lovingly say so many times, I mean, how many mammals end up needing a cesarean section? It's pretty small. And yet we're t- telling you one third to one half of all women in some countries, it's 70 percent. So this question of what if something goes wrong is a really good question. But what I've learned from my experience in both worlds is that when you keep your women healthy, keep the mothers healthy in prenatal care, which the midwifery model does much better than the obstetric model, simply not only because of the way they think about birth, but because of the time commitment they give you at a prenatal visit. They usually give you 60 minutes, sometimes maybe less, but not six or eight or, or nine minutes. That yeah, you we might... don't We don't have 60 minutes here. It would be 10 minutes. With an OB or with a midwife? No, with a midwife. Yeah, no, it wouldn't be 60 minutes. Oh, see, no. well, that's because they work for the state. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and so that so that system isn't going to be able to do preventative care to keep you healthy, to ask you, how how's your diet? How's your sleep? How's your relationship? Uh, what stresses can we alleviate? Uh, what's your social system, uh, your social network like? What's your support system like? Those questions are never asked. You may get a handout from your doctor that tells yeah. you, but they're never going to ask you specifically those questions. So from the moment that you get into that system of care, it's different. And when you don't meddle with mother nature, 
when you leave a mammal on her own to do her thing, most of the time it, it goes smoothly. And when it doesn't go smoothly, it rarely goes bad suddenly. You can see it coming from hours away when you're in labor. You can see that the baby's heart rate is rising or that mom's bleeding a little bit more than you like or or that she's not progressing or the, the contractions were spaced out and everything you're trying isn't working or whatever. It's not something that suddenly happens like you see in, in the movies or in the hospital setting where you have this famous cascade of interventions because what you're doing to this woman is anti-mammalian. You would never do to your cat in labor. I saw you had a cat back there. So it yeah, would never a dog. do. She's a dog. Dog. <laughs> yeah, dog. Like a cat, so. She's only little. Uh, no offense, no man. Um, <laughs> but you would never do a dog if she was in labor. What we do to the human female, you just wouldn't. And when you starve them, and when you restrict them, and when you uh, limit their in- their fluid intake, and when you interrupt them constantly, and when then you, um, you you know any mammal's contraction pattern is going to become dysfunctional, and then you're going to start pitocin, and that's going to hurt. So they're going to give them an epidural. And then the baby's not going to like it very much. And the heart rate pattern is going to change. And people, are people because they're anxious, are going to be uncomfortable with that. And they're going to start to plant the seeds of doubt and C-section in your mind. And eventually you'll go for a C-section because this famous diagnosis of fetal intolerance to labor, which never used to be a diagnosis, by the way. It's sort of a relatively new thing since they come out with category two tracings, which no one knows what it means. Everybody knows what a category one tracing is which is a perfectly reactive, beautiful tracing. Everyone knows what a category three tracing, which is a tracing that looks like shit, if I can say that on your podcast. Yeah, category two tracing, they're in the middle. And 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 they don't often mean anything because they'll end up doing a C-section and the baby will come out with good good blood gases and ap, you know APGARs of nine and nine. And everybody will say, great, we got a great baby out of it. But you, you, know, you sort of rescued them from the fire that you started in the first place. This is, this is a very famous thing that, that gets propagated in our world. And it's, but it's true. So the fear of doing things at home, when you, when you have a, a, a wise practitioner, or even if you want a wild birth or free birth, um, you know, if you're healthy, the likelihood that there's going to be a problem that's going to require you know, sudden ambulance transfer type thing is very, very rare. It's really less than 1% or 2%. When I hear people talk about, like on the Joe Rogan podcast, some woman was saying that you know, 50% of all home births end up in a transfer, or maybe he said that, I don't know what they were talking about, but, but um, that's not true. It's just not true. Um, Probably a lot of those anyway would have been from like maternal choice to go in, like not well, from an not, emergency. Not emergent transport. So they're not ambulances. Mm. And the ultimately thing is that bad outcomes do happen at home. Yeah. We all hear about them because they tend to make the news, but bad outcomes happen in the hospital all the time. Yeah. And, and I'm not just talking about babies that end up, suffering an injury or worse, but I'm talking about, you know, injuries to mothers and surgical births that lead to problems in future births and future in future pregnancies. Mm -hmm. And all that, all those things that wouldn't happen if you just left them alone. So, uh, you know, hospital newborn intensive care units at hospitals are often filled with seven pound babies that weren't born at home. So where did they come? Um, Yeah. And nobody says anything because one, it's makes money for the hospital, and two, it's just now become accepted that that that's okay if that happens in the hospital, but not okay if it happens at home. And again, I would tell you with a properly selected woman, or we call them clients, 
um, the likelihood of it happening at home is very is very small. I mean, I wouldn't have done what I did for 12 years. We've been always practicing for 40 years. You know, if you kept getting bad outcomes, at some point, you'd either have to have your head yeah. examined. Or- yeah. Right. Yeah. And also, I think, like, because you have all of these, the, the bad outcomes that happen in hospitals, so many more of them, you then get the kind of comments of, thank goodness we were in the hospital. Yeah. And you know, then somebody that's perhaps thinking about a home birth will then have a friend or a friend of a friend telling them, well, but my friend, this happened in the hospital. If they hadn't been, and I've heard this so many times, if they hadn't been in the hospital, this would have happened. And you can't, it's not even comparable because that wouldn't, the likelihood is have happened at home. No. And you can't, and you can't, you can't say anything to to these families because, because that's their experience and, and you're not going to be able to, fix that so we've got to educate before that happens yeah um and and a lot of that happens because that's what the medical professionals tell them they said god if you'd been at home this you your baby would have died yeah that's true and yeah uh you know i mean the problem is like a broken clock every you know twice a day they're right but most of the time they're wrong so i like that (laughs) yeah yeah, it's one of my favorites. Also, uh, even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. That's a good one too. That's a good one. I like those. I, yeah, when so you sometimes would... they're right, but but most of the time, they're they're just projecting their fear onto the women uh, that they care for, and they're using sorts of cognitive dissonance techniques to justify, like the fifty percent of doctors who are doing unnecessary C sections will never admit that they're doing unnecessary C sections. The same thing's going on here. Yeah. If if there's this cascade of interventions that leads to some bad outcome, no one's going to say it was our fault. Yeah. Apologizing has sort of disappeared in the public world. Right. Everyone's so scared, aren't they? Yeah. They're so scared to admit. Right. Admit. Yeah. But I would, I would just on a positive note, I would just say that (laughs) what's amazing is that even 60, 70% of women under the hospital circumstances can still deliver vaginally. And at home, the success rate for multiparous women is in the high 90 percentile. And for primiparous women, it's in the 80 to 80 to 85, maybe even 90 percentile. Which is still, yeah, still so high. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So, you know, there has got to be something that it, to be said. And what really should be, the whole point is informed decision making. So you really should know these facts before you make a decision. But that's not what you're going to hear from mainstream medical systems. You're just not going to hear that. You're going to hear, you know, home deliveries for pizza and home birth is dangerous. And these are, you know, these are the things that that I've accumulated over the years that people say. So uh, that's what you're going to hear. And if you don't know any better, so this is why podcasts like yours, getting the word out there to people who are interested, especially the spouses, because it's the it's the partners and the spouses that are often the most reluctant. Men are just sort of, you know, yeah. it's messy and they don't want to do it and they don't want and they're nervous about it and that sort of thing. And and I've had a lot of moms tell me that we wanted to do I wanted to do a home birth, but my partner was really against yeah. it, so we went to go to the hospital. And you know, we Bliss and I have started a um, it's going to be about every other month, I think, a webinar called bringing that home birth hesitant on board ah. uh, people can go to birthing instinctspodcast.com and sign up for that oh great uh, look at it and refer, you know for those people that you might 
love them, you might want to just buy them a ticket. I mean, it's it's not very expensive. I think it's twenty five US yeah. dollars for our webinar where we do it, and uh, we take questions and we just first we just banter back and forth for a while, like we do on the podcast, and then <laughs> for people. So it's it, it's great. Make make a great gift for a yeah. spouse, family member, or friend who's home birth hesitant. Doesn't mean we're going to try to talk into people into anything. We just want them to have the information so that they yeah. can make a decision that's best for them. And if they still choose to have an induction or a C-section or a hospital birth, well, they've done it under the right circumstances. And exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. They, they've made an informed decision. Um, that's really useful, actually, because one of the other main concerns that people had about being at home or the reason they weren't choosing home was because of what their family thought or the fact that their partner wasn't on board. Um, so there were a few that had said, I really want one, but I'm a bit nervous because of what my fam, you know, you get family members that are, I guess, fearful. So um, planting that seed of doubt, I guess. And then, yeah, you get the partners that are just not at all on board with it. So that's really useful because it's just, you know, and I often say to people, like, would they read a book or like, I can recommend books and stuff for them to read on it, but it's getting them to, to even get to that point, isn't it? Where they're yeah. even willing to do that. <laughs> yeah. You no, know, it's, it's, it, there's, it makes people uncomfortable. So that, you know, yeah. they're comfortable in what they know. You're, you're uncomfortable in what you don't know. And most people don't know. That's why 2% of British women are having home births. I mean, if, if when- they all knew, maybe, maybe it would only be 10%. But that would be that, great. That would still be good. But when you said you're um, in the US, it's like one and a half percent. I mean, obviously, that's still really low. But it's quite shocking that ours is actually not that different. Because I think one of the things that, yeah, like you said yourself, you were shocked by that figure that we think of when we think of the UK, you know, we're midwifery led, typically. Yeah. You would think it would be higher. And the fact that actually we're not far off of your figure in the US is really like just not good enough. <laughs> no, it was shocking to me. I mean, um, yeah, I've said that already. I don't want to beat that horse to death, but I was really surprised because I thought that I'd read a few years ago that the, to lower expenses, the national health service was encouraging multiparous women to mm. stay. And they, they were, would... they were because. Budget well, cuts, what? When I so with myself, I've got a almost seven year old and then a five year old. So this is only yeah, kind of five years ago. It definitely would have been recommended to me to be at home. Um, I think it, to be honest, it's since COVID and stuff. We, the 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 policies and hospitals have changed a lot, and we have lower staff numbers. So we are, you know, we are having a bit of an issue with midwives levels. All so, the more reason, oh, oh, I see lower midwife staffing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I think for many people, I had somebody the other day that I was teaching and they wanted a home birth and the midwife was like, well, your chance of giving birth at home is really low because we don't have staff to send out. And um, then there's a private, there's a private sector too, but, but financially that's probably more prohibitive, I suppose. Yeah. I, suspect. I mean, I guess, you know, that is an option for some people, but not certainly not the majority, I would I would think. So it, I think that is one of the issues. I think there are probably a lot more people that would want to have a home birth, but it's not being facilitated because we have 
not enough midwives. So it's, it's you know, it makes more sense for the midwives to be in the hospital where they can see five women at once rather than one woman at home. Uh, yeah, I, I totally get that. I get it. Here's a novel idea that that we've talked about on our podcast too, is, is that families should probably start to put money aside mm-hmm. early on, mm-hmm. even when you're young. <laughs> into, uh, like We have what's called health savings accounts, but you could just mm-hmm. do it in a bank account. Whatever, because because how you give birth is such a valuable thing, and yet we always we defer it to the government or to our insurance card or whatever else, as opposed to we would never let the government tell us. Well, maybe we will eventually, but what kind of uh, refrigerator we're going to buy, or what kind of car we want, or yeah. you know where today we would never let them make those decisions. And and then the classic example is you would never let some third party payer tell you what you can wear at your wedding and who you can invite and what venue you can use. You would never do that. But for birthing, which is one of the most important events in a woman's life, we just, if we just abdicate our responsibility to a third party who has no interest in us. Yeah. Other than a, a, you know, a widget. Yeah. That's a great idea. Right. So if you start saving money for this, like you might be saving for a college education or say, you know, for parents who have, who have children, you know, mm-hmm. start birth fund. And maybe when they get to ready to have a baby and, and you can give them a nice gift that they can then hire a private midwife or in my country, in my country, you can travel to another state, but that's expensive to get an Airbnb and sit for three weeks in another state, you know, but it it matters. It matters to you. And maybe it matters to your future babies of how you give birth yeah. and and if we start thinking more about the value of it, if we give it value, then we'll maybe do something. But right now, how we give birth, it's sort of been devalued. It has, yeah, yeah. When it when it has no value, then then you can people will just do what you're tell what you tell them to do. We spend so much money on baby moons, buggies, travel systems, cots. You know, we just do, which I get. I get as well. Like everybody wants nice things for their baby. How, I, how I do get it. Have, how many people have a crib in their house that they've never used? Yeah, no, no, that is true. I mean, yeah, and also just loads of baby equipment that you just don't use because the baby hates it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, no, I, that's true. It's true. I, I mean, I just think I think that you know we got to get the you know, the baby room ready, like yeah. the baby actually The baby could sleep in a shoebox; it'd be happy. Yeah, I know. I know. Now I know that that's not good when visitors come over that you got your baby in a shoe, but but I'm serious. You you don't need a fancy dresser and a fancy this and a fancy that. Um, and, it and really a, doesn't matter. Yeah, a rocking swing that costs twelve hundred dollars. You know, you you don't Just put the money towards something that's really a yeah. value. And that's um, you know, a, a proper midwife and and giving birth in a proper setting where you have, you know, all the all the benefits that you might not get in the hospital of. No, no specific time limits. Nobody pushing you. Able to eat. Optimal cord clamping. Uh, skin to skin immediately. Nobody's taking your baby over and washing it down and and probably injecting things into it or putting stuff in their eyeballs or or whatever. You know, you don't have any of that at home because all that stuff is not necessary. And every one of those things, except in rare, you know, rare blind squirrel moments, it is necessary. But but r- rarely is it necessary. And and all those things um, are a in my country, they they generate revenue, and I think in your country they do too, because hospitals get reimbursed from the government based on their RVS codes that yeah. they use. 
yeah it's yeah. it's yeah it's not it's not in quite an obvious way but yeah like they get funding for yeah interventions yeah. and cesareans stuff that they do the more things that they use the more that they can submit to their budget for or or the reimbursement from from the nhs that's just it's a fact yeah. and that's why there's such a, a battle sometimes to get you to be vaccinated or to get you to deliver in the hospital or to get your baby to have have vitamin k or whatever else because there's no money in not doing stuff yeah that's a big that's a big impetus in my country. And I even in, like I said, in countries where the government's paying, it's not like the government pays a hospital a flat fee. If the government paid a hospital a flat fee, the government the hospital would do a lot less. Yeah, true. Right. If yeah. the hospital got a full fee, then then they wouldn't want to be using their meds and their IVs and their other things on you. They wouldn't be insisting so much and drawing labs if if they didn't get extra revenue for drawing labs. I mean, this is a funny thing, but I, I jokingly say this when I teach my seminars is we talk about things the hospital does. And when you come in, they draw your blood mm. and they send off a CBC and they send off a clot to the, to the blood bank to have it just in case, just in case <laughs> and all that stuff. And, and then you have to pee in a cup and they send down a UA. It's like, well, how do women at home have babies if they don't pee in a cup and have their blood drawn? Yeah. yeah. Somehow they do it. They do it yeah. just fine. Yeah. Uh, but they, but in the hospital, they, they draw your blood on every, they don't, they don't individualize their care. Every person is on the assembly line and every person gets the same treatment. Whether you're coming in with a preeclamptic seizure or you're coming in having your seventh baby with no problems, you, you know, you, you get, you get your blood drawn, you get, you know, you get monitored, you get, you have to pee in a cup and change into a hospital gown and do all these things. And it's like, well, well, well why? Yeah. I'm pretty sure they can charge for a hospital gown too. Yeah. Yeah. Why can't you wear your when you're yeah. when you go to labor, you're not sick. Yeah, but we've forgotten that because the hospitals where sick people go, and you get into hospital, a bed. Yeah, and in my country, the questions that they ask you when you first admitted to the hospital are the same questions you they'd ask you if you came in with a uh, broken leg. You know, how many piercings do you have? What did your grandmother die from? How many stairs do you have in your house? Like these are relevant questions to a woman in labor. Really? <laughs> wow, really? Yeah, and it's all time. Time is money. Um, right. Okay, so in terms of kind of uh, giving birth at home, what I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I know the answer to it. Like the, the answer, I think everyone's gonna know, know what you're gonna, what you're gonna say. But I'm gonna ask you it anyway. Um, okay. How late, like how overdue, can you still give birth at home? Like how, how is it okay, safe? No, it. Is it safe to give birth at home after like forty weeks, forty-one weeks, or two weeks, yes. basically? <laughs> yes, it can be and it cannot be. And so each right. case is individualized in our model. But um, yeah. I know I know the I know you know the answer to this question. <laughs> uh, you know, in, in my country, in, in, there are some regulations where which are really sort of dastardly regulations where all women at 42 weeks, you can't go past 42 weeks at home. And if you do, you're, you're the midwife's breaking the law. So what the hot, what the law does is it forces a midwife to abandon her patient at the time where she's most vulnerable and unlikely to find anyone who will take care of her at 40. You know, no doctor, you know, no OB is going to take on someone at 42 weeks unless the midwife has a collaborative relationship with a local physician to do that. So that's really stupid. Some babies need to be out at 39, 39 and a half weeks. I'm not talking about the arrived trial. I'm talking about because they're not growing well or because they have a true uh, problem with their blood pressure or 
some other medical issue that says that you're better off with the baby being outside. But if a baby is fine at 40 weeks and at 41 weeks, and you start to test the baby with testing that as far as, as far as good data goes, there's some decent data that supports the idea that if you have what's called a biophysical profile or a non-stress test or a modified biophysical profile, and you have a perfect score that the likelihood of a adverse event, and by that is a euphemism for, you know, a bad baby, um, uh, is very, very small, probably less than one or 2%. So that would give you the information that you safe to go on for at least three or four days and then be retested. And that's where the, that's the study that was done. And it's one of the studies that I tend to believe in because it, although it generates revenue for the MFM, it, it doesn't lead to intervention for the mother. Um, so I tend to choose my studies by, by who benefits, who paid for the study, you yeah. know, why come out now, that sort of thing. I have to look very carefully at studies, but if they, if, if you have normal testing at 41 weeks, then you can wait till 41 and a half weeks. And if it's normal at 41 and a half weeks, you can wait till 42 weeks. And if it's normal at 42 weeks, then why do you have to be induced at 42 weeks? If you trusted it at 41 weeks, yeah, you trusted it at 42 weeks. And if it's normal at 42 weeks, you wait another three, four, three days or so, and then you test again. And at some point, partly because of culture, people will start to get anxious and they may want to do something, whether it's homeopathic remedies, castor oil, or going to the hospital and getting induced, they may start to feel the pressure, which is one of the things we, a one positive thing is never tell your family members, your friends, your due date. Yeah. Right, that's well known now in the community yeah. because they'll write it down and then they'll start to bug you and they'll start to tell you, well, my doctor said that, you know, when I was a day overdue, that uh, my baby was now yeah. overdue, not overdue. Forty weeks is, by the way, is the middle of a bell-shaped curve. Yeah. So, it would be the oddest-shaped bell-shaped curve to say that at forty weeks in one minute you're now overdue. No, forty-nine percent <laughs> or whatever it is, the people will deliver beyond their due date yeah okay. and due dates are so variable anyway because menstrual histories are sometimes harder to remember um and ultrasounds have you know even early ultrasounds have three to four day errors of of scanning so don't be glued into your due date but in the home birth world we unless you have a law preventing you and i did in my state of california when i was practicing midwives had a 42-week law and i didn't which was really dumb because if it's bad for the midwife to do it, why isn't it bad for me to do it? Yeah. Later just forgot to put the word doctor in the law. So we got, you know, and they didn't think any doctors would be dumb enough to do home birthing. <laughs> so I, I was the one who would end up helping these midwives by taking over their care and as a figurehead and going to the birth. And this is where the famous Dr. Stu on the couch package came, you know, we had this thing where they pay me to come and sit on the couch and the midwives would do everything just as if, but I made it legitimate. Like my presence made, made it legitimate. It was really kind of, you can see how dumb that, <laughs> but you, you know, when you have, when you have people making rules that don't understand birth, this mm -hmm. is what you. Yeah. And your, so your, 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 um, outcomes from that time when you were doing that, I mean, I'm guessing they were all mainly fine. <laughs> from that time when they were over 42 weeks yes yeah yes they were yeah they were i mean uh it, it's it was really rare for us to have 
a bad outcome uh, in the home birth room. I did have some, mm. but anybody who practices, whether at home or in the hospital, is going to have some. But not, you know, if the testing was fine, they did fine. And if babies, if babies in labor aren't tolerating labor, you're going to hear it. You're yeah. going to know. You know, and if they rupture, their, if their membranes rupture and they have this really pea soupy meconium stuff, um, then you have an informed conversation with your client about whether or not it's really worth staying home or not. Yeah. And, and I think meconium, this is another, another sort of misconception, but the passage of meconium is not related directly to meconium aspiration syndrome. All meconium aspiration syndrome babies generally will have passed meconium. But most babies who pass meconium will never have meconium aspiration syndrome. It's like all elephants are mammals, but not all mammals are elephants. That sort of thing. Yeah. So um, the fact that meconium is one of those words that strikes fear into people who don't know better. And and in breech birth, for, of course, passage meconium is is a sign of is a positive sign of descent. So it's a good thing, actually. Yeah. Yeah. The meconium yeah. thing is it comes up a lot, doesn't it? The, uh, there are a lot of misconceptions around what it means if you've got meconium in yeah. your waters. Yeah, no, no, it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's remarkable that most babies don't poop in utero. It's like, yeah. how do they do that? How, yeah, how do they hold it for 40, 40, 40, 40? I don't know how they do. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah, there is a lot of misconceptions because because again, as I said at the very beginning, fear is a great motivator. And whether it's the doctors who are fearful, the nurses who are fearful, the patients who are fearful, it doesn't matter. If if all you if all that matters is getting a live baby in the best, you'll do anything. And the minute that someone says to you, your baby's in trouble, you don't want your baby to be injured, do you? Um, it's over. Yeah. So you have to be prepared ahead of time to know that they're often gaslighting you. Hmm. And trusting your birth worker enough to know that they're going to be honest with you. And that's very hard in the system where you have shift medicine. Uh, you have no idea who's going to be caring for you when you're in labor, whether it's the nurse or the doctor. And then you might get to like your nurse. Yeah. Seven o'clock rolls around and it's change of shift. And now you've mm-hmm. got a, a person you've never met before. Yeah. And the system isn't designed to support the pregnant women. It's designed to support the system. Okay, so one of the other things that quite a few people asked, and this was actually one of my own personal concerns as well when I was planning home birth, is what happens if a PPH, so postpartum hemorrhage, happens at home? Okay, first you ought to know that they're less likely to happen at home because you haven't been hyperstimulating the uterus, you haven't been tugging on the placenta, you haven't done things that can increase the risk of a postpartum hemorrhage, sometimes a long drawn out labor, but a long drawn out labor at home often ends up in a, in a non-emergent transport to the hospital. So, uh, but let's just say you are, you are having, you know, having one at home, you have, you have a, you know, uh, uteronatomy afterwards, or you're having a lot of bleeding afterwards. Home birth attendants are trained to deal with that. And then most of the time, um, because they carry, well, first of all, they have knowledge about how to prevent it by not tugging on the cord and, and uh, waiting for the placenta to separate and knowing if they have to do a manual extraction, how to do that and knowing that that's going to cause more bleeding potentially, or so is a woman with polyhydramnios or a woman with twins more likely to have a hemorrhage and being prepared for that and carrying your, your um, 
medicines for for hemorrhage, and whether that be I don't we don't have to get into the specific medications, um, but you know having IV fluid available and having access. You don't have to have an IV put in. Most of us who are home birth trained are pretty good at putting IVs in when when needed. The hospital likes to have one just in case, but it is limiting and and uh, it, it it's not uncomfortable. I mean, it's it's not it's can be uncomfortable uh, to have that sitting in your wrist for you know twelve hours, twenty hours, whatever it is. But you're being prepared for that, you know, and knowing the the when too much is too much and knowing when to call it for transport. I, I will tell you that maybe I'm lucky, but in the 13 years that I was doing home birthing, I, I never transferred a woman for postpartum hemorrhage. I've had a lot of them, a lot of postpartum hemorrhages. We were able to manage them at home because we knew what we were doing. That's really um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's actually, uh, think of, I think of, Technically, it's remarkable when I because when I look at statistics about postpartum hemorrhage, you know, it's a certain percentage of all pregnancies, and like, well, okay, yeah, well, I'm I'm having that many in in, in the twin in their twin paper, fifteen percent of our our twin moms had postpartum hemorrhage, which was greater than a thousand cc's, but we didn't have to transfer any of them. Are they included in that data? Would they be? Yeah, yeah. my data that's trying to get published. Yeah, it's it'll be it'll be out there at some point. Yeah. We do a deep dive into, uh, into twin birthing uh, in the paper and then the problems with twin birthing in the hospital setting and the fact that so many physicians uh, consider themselves experts in pregnant in obstetrics, yet don't do breech delivery. And 50 some percent, a little over 50 percent of all twins will have at least one baby in the breech presentation. Mm. And they will tell you that if a baby's in the breech presentation, you should have a C-section. But what's actually true is that doctor who's taking care of you with twins, who doesn't know how to do a breech delivery, is not an expert in twin birthing and then should be telling you at your 10 or 12 week visit when you find out you've got twins and say, congratulations, this is wonderful news, but I'm not good at this. So I'm going to send you to somebody else. But that's not what they do. They start grooming you from the beginning about induction and C-section because you have twins. Yeah. And again, the blind squirrel theory comes into place, you know, because every now and then, but most of the time they're not. And uh, I don't know how I got off on a twin tangent there. We were talking about bleeding. Oh, we're talking about hemorrhage. Right. So yeah, you can, you can generally control it. And again, in a, in a big city like London, you know, how far are you from a hospital? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you live two hours out in the country, you know, it's a different story. And if you're at if you're at high risk for hemorrhaging, you want to make sure you know, that's an option you want to take into it. Maybe, you know, make sure that the your your practitioner has what it takes and knows what to do. Or or maybe you you travel and go to a birth center that's a little closer to the hospital. But you don't have to be in the hospital. Just in case that would be calling that would be called erring on the side of caution. Mm, yeah. Back to my my old saying is that. Yeah give birth in the hospital because a small percentage are going to have a problem. Yeah. But then we, we create a problem in the large percentage who didn't really need to have a problem. So when they, obviously when they are, when you're kind of looking at blood loss after it's all just done from like eyeballing it, isn't it? So you're just kind of estimating the amount based on what you can see. 
And am I right in thinking that anything kind of over 500 milliliters would technically be classed as a PPH? Yeah, that's it depends on the which terminology you're using. They they've they've recently changed it. It was 500 for vaginal delivery and 1000 for a C-section. I, I I may have that backwards or wrong, not backwards but just wrong. I don't yeah. I mean, numbers eluding me right now, but I think I think the the thing is 500. The problem is, is estimating blood loss is very, very difficult to do for yeah. most. Uh, I mean, we as doctors get no training in it. Midwives get training in it. You know, they actually practice with chucks and pouring, you know, red right. water on it and weighing it and figuring it out by lifting it and getting used to it or or checking out the color of the water in the birth pool. They can kind of estimate, you know, doctors don't get any of the training in that really whatsoever. So it's very hard to estimate. And, and again, if there's a, if there's an incentive to underestimate it, that's what doctors will do. I can go off on a story and tell you that the hospital that I used to work at in Ventura County, California, they had a thing where all charts were flagged that the blood loss was over 300 cc's flagged for review, 300, which was a number that didn't exist even with the American College of OBGYN or anything. They picked 300. But one of the doctors in the in-group told me at one time, I'm not sure why she told me this, but she told me that her her boss told her to never put down more than 299 cc blood loss on a chart. So they were lying on the chart to avoid the scrutiny. Yeah. Tell the doctors who were less favored, like our group and a couple other doctors, about this secret number so that they were reviewing all our charts and they, they, they justified reviewing all our charts because our blood loss was 350 cc's or 400 cc's or 600 cc's, even though the mother did perfectly fine and was stable and no other problems. And that's not even considered a hemorrhage for, for most of those women, but they, they did it. So it was, again, it was, it's, it's nefarious what goes on sometimes in the, in wow. the hospital. That's, that's terrible. Jesus, yes. But it doesn't mean that, that uh, it's it, it's an individualized thing. You look at the woman. Yeah, and she's, yeah. Is she tachycardic? Is she dizzy? Is she making urine? These are the kind of and these are the things that a midwife who stays four to six hours, you know, three to six hours after the birth of the baby can assess. Doctors, the doctors, you know, if a woman delivers and and the doctors, you know, go goes home forty five minutes later. Hmm. Woman goes off to the ward. Where no one's paying attention to her really in the room. The nurse comes in periodically. I've had clients in the hospital who had hemorrhaging postpartum in the bed and no one picked it up overnight. And I would come in and I would see them in the morning and I would pull the covers back and on the chucks would be 800 cc's a clot. And, you know, they had a Foley in or something. They didn't know. Um, So, you know, the hospital is supposed to be this really safe place. But as you said earlier, the midwife could take care of five people instead of one. Yeah. So do for five people what you can do for one. Mm. I understand the economics of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we all can. But, but then, it, then don't lie about it. Yeah. So you're yeah. not going to get the same attention. Yeah. Hospital is going to be great and better for certain situations. But the home is going to be great and better for a lot more situations. I just believe that. And again, because I've lived in both worlds, I'm not saying that 
I don't have any I don't have any financial incentive in saying that. No, no. I don't I don't do home birthing anymore anyway. No. So I'm just speaking what I've what I've seen. And I I think that there's wisdom in 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 you know we've we've we have a culture where you know it's funny, we keep electing really old people, but we keep saying that really old people don't deserve, you know, that you know, don't trust anyone over 30 was a big saying when I was growing up. <laughs> And, and, but, you know, grandma has a lot of wisdom. Yeah. She may not recognize you sometimes, but she got a lot of, <laughs> do you know what I said? I, I told this story on here the other week, but um, my, my mom actually is a identical twin. So I um, sometimes talk to my nan cause she's still here. She's 88, but very, very with it. And um, I sometimes talk to her about it because it was a different era when she gave birth to them. And she, um, yeah, she. I mean, she gave birth to them. She she was in the hospital, but they were they were born at like thirty three weeks naturally. You know, they came they came on their own at that point, um, so they were very tiny. But she, yeah, she kind of talks about it like, yeah, <laughs> no no big deal. Yeah, and, they um, came out. They came out, and she went on to have my uncle. You know, a few years later at home. Yeah, you know, that, it was what it was, and it's just so interesting kind of talking to somebody about it who yeah went through that especially with twins because well, now see, that, you know to me that makes you lucky that you have that culture because so many people have the opposite culture and the, and the, that's why you'll have a two percent home birth rate well I don't, I, I don't so much with my so my mom had a very different birth very hospitalized because she gave birth I mean I'm an 80s baby so she was giving birth in the 80s when it was really medicalized so her you know, I grew up with her telling me, you know, oh, it's the worst 24 hours of your life. All of, you know, all of this stuff. But she had a very, she didn't have a great experience because of you know, how it's been medicalized for a hundred years though. I mean, I, I right. was born in the fifties yeah, and my mother had ether and I was pulled out with forceps. Yeah. There wasn't, it wasn't like forceps for an emergency. It was that yeah. all the babies. They're twilight, twilight birth, hospital. right? What's that? Twilight birth it's called, isn't it? I twilight. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the story that I remember being told right. was that the women came in, they got to complete, they knocked them out and they pulled the babies out with forceps. That's just what they did. I think there was an episode of outlander where they did that to Claire too. Wow. Do you oh, know what the, um, the queen, she, one of her uh, births was a twilight birth. Yeah. I learned, I learned that. A little while ago. <laughs> Who was it? <laughs> I don't know. No, he was a cesarean. Oh, Charles was a cesarean. Huh? Yeah, the others were all were, were V-backs, which I thought was great. But um, one of them, I think, was a twilight bear. Um, interesting. So, um, okay. So one of the other things that I think people worry about with being at home, which again is fair enough, um, but I want to ask you about it, is what happens if baby comes out and baby is kind of not breathing or needs a bit of help breathing? What happens in a home situation? Good question. Um, most well, first of all, everyone that's at a home birth should be trained in what's called neonatal resuscitation. So we we bring certain things with us, but mostly it's our skill of how to assess a baby and what to do in the first few minutes of of life. Most of the time, again, if a baby a baby rarely, rarely, rarely will surprise you with its heart rate being normal in labor and the second stage, will it come out and have something be really wrong 
So in the second stage, if you have a really good heartbeat going on without deep variable D cells or anything like that, it's unlikely that you're going to give baby that that's a problem. If you suspect that there's going to be a problem, they need to have a good team available. And, uh, you know, you, you, you do your resuscitation and most of the time it'll work. If not, then you have to call Then yeah, of course you have to call an ambulance. Yeah. Um, but you, again, because you're not hyperstimulating the uterus, because you're not restricting the mother's food intake, you're not disconnecting the mother from her baby with an epidural. Like you know, people have probably heard me talk about that, but, but, um, you don't see these, the sudden deterioration of the fetal status that you would see in the hospital setting. So you're not using drugs. You're not giving a little bit of fentanyl or, or morphine in labor or nitrous oxide or anything else that may cross the placenta and, and subdue the baby a little bit. So you don't, it's very rare. Obviously what happens, it can be very serious and very frightening, but it's, again, it's, it's, it's not a reason to have all babies be born in the hospital because then you're much more likely to have that scenario occur. Mm. And I think if you only know hospital birthing, you think of birth as dangerous because, because you see it so often. Yeah. And if you home, you don't, mm. but do, doing, you know, knowing your steps of when to intervene on a baby, when it comes out and how much time to give it and what, what primary apnea is versus secondary apnea and, and the things that you need to do. Um, are, tra- are, are, are like anything else. If you're trained to do it, you're trained to do it. I think as well, uh, like people don't often realize that the initial steps, if that was to happen and a baby was to be born that needed help breathing, the initial steps are the same, whether you're at home or in a hospital, right? So they're going to be doing the same things in a hospital initially that you'd be doing at home to try and get that baby breathing. If, you, if you're skilled, yes. If you know what you're doing. I mean, what, what a mid, what, I've watched midwives resuscitate babies. I've done it myself, but I've watched midwives do it. And they really, I mean, they really do it in a sort of a kinder, gentler way. They do it often, often skin to skin or right next to mom. They leave the cord intact. They don't cut the cord and walk the baby over to the warmer, which is something I, uh, you know, I did for years and never really understood until I started thinking about it. Wait a minute. Baby's not doing well. So we're going to walk the baby. We're going to cut the cord and give the baby oxygen over there as opposed to leaving the cord intact and hoping that they're still transmitting uh, uh, oxygen and nutrients from the mother to the baby while we resuscitate the baby on the bedside. So, right. So at home, you're, you know, you leave the cord intact. Often the resuscitation is done on mom's chest, unless you need to do full on uh, heart uh, chest compressions, that kind of thing. But, but then you need a harder surface underneath, but the, but the skill of the people doing it is, is similar. Now going at home, we don't intubate, we, you know, we don't have the uh, NICU team that we can push a button on the wall and they can r- come rushing down. But so, but many times the NICU team is called inappropriately. And then what happens is this whole cascade of interventions on the baby, because now that the NICU team is called, like I worked at a hospital that had a protocol that if you call the NICU team, there must have been something seriously wrong. And so we're going to take the baby to the nursery for a while and watch the baby. Mm. It seems to be fine five minutes later. Yeah, and you've because, separated it then, haven't you? Yeah. Well, the cord's been cut, and the, and the mom and baby mm-hmm. are separated because of a protocol, not because because they're not allowed to individualize. Mm. They don't have the manpower to have someone sit there and watch the baby. Like you said, take the baby to the NICU, you can have one person watching a bunch of babies. Yeah. So, and plus, there's a great financial incentive 
for hospitals with NICUs, newborn intensive care units, to use them. Yeah. Right. That's what happens. Yeah. When you have a new technology or a new a new uh, system in your hospital, um, the motivation from the administrative people who bought it or put it in is to get you to use it. So if you never had an ultrasound in your office before and suddenly you pay $20,000 and buy an ultrasound for your office, you suddenly find reasons to be using it and, and putting in RBS codes and charging for it. But yeah, but last week you didn't have one and you were doing just fine. Yeah. Do you know what, there's, a, um, there's an episode of Grey's Anatomy where they get this really fancy new scanner and they're all desperate to use it on somebody. <laughs> it's the same right. thing. But yesterday they didn't have it. Exactly, yeah. Right. So, yeah, and, and the hospital wants you to use it because, they, you know, it costs a million dollars. So you want to pay for it. Yeah. Right. Right. So. Okay. Good well, question. That's a good question. That's yeah. the one question that people ask a lot. Yeah. Um, but again, babies that need a lot of help right at birth are, very, are also very rare. We're talking about very rare things. Now, if you feel safer doing rare things for rare things that might happen to be in the hospital, that's fine. But you have to understand that by being in the hospital, you're creating a whole new set of things that can happen that wouldn't happen at home. Yeah. But you're never informed of that by the by the hospital model. I mean, I look at consent systems for like breech birth. The American College OBGYN tells says something like um, properly selected uh, term breech birth under hospital specific protocol guidelines is very safe. But you have to inform women that there's a slight increased risk of morbidity to the baby if it's born vaginally by breech. The Royal College of OBGYN has their thing, and they talk about not only that, but they also talk about you have to inform the woman of the risks of cesarean to her, her baby, and her future babies. The American College doesn't have that in their guidelines. Right. You're only told the risk of breach, not the risk of C-section for breach. Which there Um, are many, yeah, there are many risks. Right, especially if you want a large family. Yeah. Because if you do a C-section for whatever reason on your first baby, um, because it's safer, you've now put all her, the mother's future babies at greater risk. Yeah. So that's a decision that should be expressed openly to the family and given information so that they can make a decision that's what's best for their family. It's just that's not what's done. The system doesn't have time for that. The system doesn't want you to do that. And so um, many people just do they will not know that. They don't know that that is the case. That with f- future pregnancies. No, no. As you said earlier, everyone's groomed to trust their doctor. Mm. And if, if anything's been made clear over the last two or three years is that doctors are not to be trusted. Something from a doctor as well. I like it. Yeah. No, <laughs> I don't want people to distrust me blindly. Yeah. No, and that, yeah. information and, and, and do, uh, do exactly. their own homework and research. And, you know, there are so many doctors who ridicule women who come in. Oh, you've been doctor Googling again. It's like, well, I, I wouldn't trust Google either, but but there are <laughs> yeah. forums that you can go to where you can get information that that is less biased. There is no such thing as non-biased information. Mm. I'm, you and I are expressing biased information today. Yeah. Right. But we're, yeah. at least we're honest and open about the fact that we have a bias. Yeah. And also, you know, just I always tell people, be cynical of everything, like me as well. Yeah. Feel free, like, but, you know, be cynical of anything I say and question it. Because that's right. You should, you should, like you said, not just blindly trust, you know, us either. That's you, just... want to, you want to build a sense of community with people and family mm. members that you trust so yeah. that you don't have to be, 
questioning everything all the time. Yeah. I mean, you want to trust that your spouse is telling you that that he'll be home in 10 minutes, he'll be home in 10 minutes. You want you want you don't want to have to not trust people around you. Yeah. But the medical profession has given you every reason yeah. over the last 50 to 100 years to not trust them. Wake up and stop and 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 challenge them and ask questions. I mean, they've been wrong. I I I can't say they've been wrong about everything. But you can go back in time and you can talk about thalidomide and you can talk about DES and you can talk about the food pyramid and you can talk about statins for your, for cholesterol and you can talk about SSRIs and there and, and Vioxx and I don't know, you know, I could go. And, and then, of course, the most recent thing, which I won't mention because I don't know if that thing on your I don't want you to have a black mark. Yeah, but you know, get flagged up <laughs> talking about and they've been wrong about everything. Yeah. And so when you're wrong about it, one thing, okay, you can give somebody a second chance. But if they're continually wrong, at some point you have to say, you know what? You're not trustworthy anymore. I'm not going to trust you. You've lost trust. And once trust is lost, very hard to get it back, actually. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. So I have a couple more questions for you because I know that we, um, you know, yeah, we, you, we need to get on. So a, a question that somebody asked me, which I think is a good question. What are some essential questions that people should be asking their home birth providers, midwives, when they're planning a home birth? What are some things we should be asking? So specifically home birth. Yeah. Well, that's a, you know, that's a really good question because most practitioners who are doing home birth practice in a certain way, but you wouldn't be seeking them out in the first place. So I, I think you want to, you know, you, you might want to ask questions like, what is your sy- system for backup? Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens if you're not, a bit, it's almost not medically indicated questions. It's more logistic questions. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. You know, what if you're at another birth? What if you're stuck in a snowstorm? You know, uh, who, who's going to help me? How often am I going to see you? How many times do you come postpartum? You know, what things do you carry in your bag? I'm I'm sure that I'm leaving out some major thing that I'm not thinking about because this is not a question I get asked a lot. Yeah. And then and then a, a really good question for any practitioner for any woman is when you go in to see your practitioner, how do you feel after the visit? This is a really a big red flag. That's a great one. Yeah. Reassured, or do you feel worse than when you came in? Because most pregnant women go to their practitioners visit with a little bit of anxiety you know they want to know they want they want to be told that everything is going great and so yeah so how do you feel when you left the practice this was something i got from the down to birth people on their podcast and and i want to give credit to them for saying that it's really a red flag you know how much time does she give you but midwives generally give you well in your system you said they don't but yeah it's different System, the, the visits are, you know, 45 minutes to 60 minutes, almost always, at least here in, in the United States with the private midwives I've spoken to. I've never seen a private midwife tell me she has ceased clients every 10 minutes. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, you can't do that. No, that, and that's great. And, how, and then the, the thing is, how, 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 do you, how do you feel? What's your trust level? I mean, everybody has a sixth sense. Yeah. Everybody right away if they click with somebody or not. If that mm-hmm. sales too slick, you're out of there, All right? Yeah. And if that salesman is personal, if that salesman remembers your name, if that remembers your partner's name, if it remembers your other kids' names, 
those, those are nice signs that this person that actually is taking an interest in you. I don't know what else to tell you about that. I'm not going to talk about the meds they carry and all that other stuff. Yeah. But you know what, though? it's And this is actually an example I sometimes use um, when I'm teaching. But if you were going to go and see like a plastic surgeon because you were going to have your nose done or something, if you felt really uncomfortable with that person, you're not going to let them near your face, are you? Like, you just, nobody would because you just don't get, yeah, good vibes from them. But when it comes to giving birth, we so often let that slide. But actually, like, this, this has to be more important than getting something fixed on your face like it has to be but well, we let it slide. And, and the other thing about that claire is getting something fixed on your face or getting a surgery on your shoulder or something you know you you really want the best surgeon and if he's an asshole okay so fine you're gonna you're never gonna see him again mm. but there's something really different and personal about birth yeah yeah that that's different than having somebody you know fix your shoulder and even if he's like, you never see him, the nurses take you here. They take it before you ever, like when I, I've had eye problems this past year. And when I go to see my eye doctor, he's, he's very like short, doesn't re- usually remember who I am. Yeah. Um, the nurses do the same routine. Every time I go there, I got to go in a room. I got to sit in a chair, got to get drops in my eyes. I got to look at the eye chart. They got to check the pressure in my eye. They do. A, then they take a picture of my eyeball. I said, well, you just took a picture of my eyeball two weeks ago. Well, we just want to make sure it's not changed. You know, I know where this is going. So that's the way the, the way it works. And then he comes in and he's very sort of short, curt with me. Um, but he's the best, supposedly the best eye surgeon in the town that's closest to me that has eye surgeons. So yeah. So I'm sticking with him. Yeah. But would I I stick with him if it was if I was having a baby with him? If yeah, he was taking exactly. house? No, I would not. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, as a man, I wouldn't have much say in that matter anyway. <laughs> but you but know what? Like- I've spoken to, I, I talked to quite a lot of people for the podcast. Obviously, they share their stories. And I've spoken to quite a few actually from the US recently. And a few of them have said that they changed providers because they just felt so uncomfortable with who they were with. And I think that is great that if people are doing that, because that, you know, you are advocating for yourself, aren't you? If you are saying, no, I don't feel comfortable with this. So um, I think that's great. And I agree. People should be feeling comfortable with who they're going to be with. Um, right. I just have one more question. It's not actually related to home birth, but I just out of interest, I'm interested to know what it is that made you interested in obstetrics specifically. What got you into obstetrics? Oh, I, I think I think I I think I drank too much the night before. <laughs> <laughs> well, before no. you had to pick your um, specialty. <laughs> I I can t- I can tell you exactly what got me into it, and that was that um, I was doing in, in the third year medical students. Students, you do rotations. You do mm-hmm. six weeks, four weeks on this, and six weeks on this. And I had done neurology, and I had done internal medicine. And I really liked internal medicine. Uh, and then I did hematology oncology which was pediatric and it and it was very depressing for me to watch these little kids suffering and dying and then my next rotation was obstetrics and instead of being up at four in the morning um dealing with a kid who's having a seizure i'm up at four in the morning catching a baby and this was just enlightening for me in because i i really gave it deep thought and i thought you know i really want to do something that's longitudinal care so the longitudinal care specialties are things like family practice, internal medicine, and obstetric and uh, OBGYN. If you're an ER physician, if you're a pathologist, if you're an eye doctor, you don't see people long-term. You see them once or twice, and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. 
I liked continuity of care. I liked getting to know the people that I was taking care of. But OB had babies and OB had surgery, which internal medicine did not. So I made the, I made the choice to go into that because you're young and you're naive and you're idealistic at that time. You don't think about the hours. You don't think about being up at night. You don't think about the malpractice situation. Um, those are things you don't think about when you're, you know, young and in your early twenties. Um, so that's how I picked it was essentially that it was longitudinal care. I get to do a little bit of endocrinology, a little bit of internal medicine, a little bit of psychiatry, a little bit of um, surgery, and I get to catch babies and all that. So that's, it was pretty yeah. cool. That's, that's why I did it. But yeah. again, I was very medicalized. I, I, I did everything. I was the guy that we laugh about now. We, we sort of laugh about in the, in the hazmat suit, you know, with you up in stirrups, <laughs> cutting your episiotomy. When I trained in medical school, every single woman at the hospital in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I trained, <clears throat> got a medial lateral episiotomy. I don't care if it was their third or fourth baby. We, we cut episiotomies on all of them. And we did it without really consenting them. Um, looking back on that, it was the norm then. And you should only judge people by the era in which they live. You can't really judge them by today's standards. But it was really brutal. Um, and, uh, you know, I was the one who cut the cord immediately. I was the one who said, showed you your baby and then walked it across the room and set it down in the warmer. That was me. Right. Yeah. I was the one who said on postpartum day one or two, I'll see you in six weeks. That was me. And that's because that's what I learned and that's what I was trained to do. But that's, again, not how it should be, not ever how it should have been. It's certainly not how it should be now. Women need to take back their power. They need to demand this stuff because giving birth is such a wonderful thing. It's, I mean, having children and now having my first grandchild, I, yeah. everything. Yeah. It's, I mean, I love what I do. I love teaching and things, but nothing takes precedent over the fact when I get to see my, my daughter or my stepsons or especially my little, my little grandbaby. Oh, that's so, great. No, that's interesting. And you, you know, you were off track. I don't even know if I answered the question. But. No, you did. But like, you only know what you know as well. Like you said, you know, at the time you, you, you're doing what you know and what you're told and we only know what we know. Um, but no, that was interesting. I was just interested as to what led you down that route. Cause you're obviously, I mean, you've obviously worked well, in that area for a while. If I go even, if I take a step backwards, I didn't even want to go to medical school. All right. I never had this yeah. urge to be a doctor. All right. I wanted to be a forest ranger. Actually. <laughs> I really liked the outdoors. They're quite different. <laughs> but I grew up in a Jewish family with a Jewish mother and Jewish sons of Jewish mothers know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you want you to go to medical school. So I was good at science. So I had all the prereqs done anyway, because I was in, I was in the college of biological sciences anyway. And a bunch of my buddies were going to do it any, going to medical school. And I said, well, I can do it. If they can do it. I can do it. So I chose medicals, not because it was a passion, but because sort of, yeah. It was it was it was the thing to do in in the um in the seventies. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, you're obviously incredibly passionate about it. Um, now I am. <laughs> now you are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's interesting and um great. No, thank you so much for talking to us. Like so helpful for people. And obviously you have um, you know, lots of ways that people can find you. I'll leave your kind of social links and podcast and website and things like that in the in the notes so that people can find you and you know, you have so much 
wisdom and um, things to share with people. So I do recommend that everybody does come and find you and have a listen. And, and you know, your um, your seminar for birth partners is sounds great. So. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I, people can look that up again. Birthinginstinctspodcast.com is that, and then, and then um, I would just say to the women listening, um, this is a this is a monumental event in your life, and your body's designed to do it. And if you just trust in that, you know, find trust and let trust triumph over fear, and and put together a good support system and a good team, and you will never regret it. Well, I can't say never regret it because birth is always question. You know, you you never know. Life is general. You never know you're going to wake up in the morning. So, but you, you don't not go to sleep because you might not wake up in the morning. You don't. Okay. You don't not get in the car because you could have an accident. Yeah, unless you're agoraphobic, you don't do that. And well, since yeah. it's, it's the same thing here, you should you should trust that your body is designed. That nature has designed this over millennia, millennia, millennia. Once, I guess to to do it naturally and 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 what we've done in the medical model has not been beneficial if you just look at the numbers we talked earlier 40 percent of women are getting c-sections and 30 40 50 60 percent of women are getting induced 80 percent of women are getting epidurals in my country less in your country but but more in my country and do we really do we really believe that all those things are necessary and we've been sold a bill of goods and it's time to it's time to re- return the merchandise yeah. and, and try and, and try a new path. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. Nice, uh, nice closing thoughts. I like that. Thank you. You're welcome. But, yeah, thank you so much. It's been lovely to speak to you and for taking the time to yeah come and talk to everybody. And I'd love to welcome you back at some point in the future to talk about something else. I'm sure there's many other things that we could talk about. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about breaches. We could talk about twins. We could talk about um, well. Yeah, there are there are many many things. So yeah, uh, thank you. I, this is this is great timing for me. I just love talking, and I love, by the way, just listening to British accent. It's <laughs> something like I said at the beginning. There's something about me, you know, being named Stuart and loving and feeling like I had past lives when I was yeah. on the plane um, years ago, 1986. I was there, and I had this past life experience, which was really weird. So wow. uh, yeah. made me inspired me to read pretty much everything I can read about British history. And I, and I love it. So yes, I will be back on at any time that Brilliant. you feel that's worthy of it. Um, because there's so, so if you, yeah, just reach out. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much. It's lovely to meet you and have a lovely rest of your day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. A big, big thank you to Dr. Stu for taking the time to chat to me. I had a really great time recording with him and hopefully you guys found it really, really useful. As I said, I will leave all of his details in the show notes. This is the last episode of season seven. I will be back at the beginning of April with a brand new episode. Going to be spending the next week's recording episodes for you guys. So the next season season eight will be out the start of april take care and i will speak to you then 